Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Petrolhead Podcast. I'm Kyle Mayer. I'm Chaz Logue. And this podcast is brought to you by Petrolhead Cafe, a soon-to-be-launching bar and restaurant concept uh, in Hartford, Connecticut. This podcast is also brought to you by BuildSource.org. That's BuildSource.org, your source for buying and selling surplus building materials. So check it out, BuildSource.org, for your next uh, project, or if you are a uh, building supply company or hardware company, and maybe you've got some materials lying around on clearance that you want to sell off quickly, Use the platform buildsource.org to list and sell or buy if you're in the market. I now have a, uh, a vested interest in uh, Scuderia Ferrari winning races or being successful. Why is that? I bought 35 shares of Palantir Technologies. Oh, okay. <laughs> Palantir had their IPO and I decided to gamble and buy some shares. You know, and so far... I've been losing money. I've lost about 30 cents per share. <laughs> so I, I bought, I it, I didn't, th- the price wasn't too high when I bought the shares. I was like, oh, like I, I checked uh, when the IPO happened and I was expecting the price to, I mean, the initial, uh, I don't know, like not the initial, maybe the initial offer price, something or other, like the initial, whatever the initial price was that they offered to early investors was like $7.25 per share. Mm-hmm. So I was expecting the price to spike to like twenty or thirty dollars per share, but it was like I think I bought each share for like ten dollars. When did it IPO? What? When did it IPO? I think the thirtieth. A lot going on in the market in general, so I wonder if it's just regular market turbulence that's been throwing you around. Yeah, I mean, it. I think the IPO was uh, was a week ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was the thirtieth. So I bought at close to eleven dollars per share. Then it went down to like $9 per share, and today it was around $10.35 a share. So I just decided to to be like, hey, like an IPO for like a tech company that's kind of big-ish, you know, that people know about, like maybe this will go somewhere, but so far not. But that's you, can always, okay. you can always buy Ferrari directly. Their, uh, I think their ticker is R-A-C-E. It's race. Oh, really? I, I believe that's their ticker. I mean, it's been a while since I've been, you know, trading stocks, but, um. Yeah, is that for Ferrari, the company, or Scuderia the company. Ferrari? For the company. Okay. Yeah, including okay. of Scuderia. Okay. Cause sometimes I know that there are kind of separate companies or like subsidiary companies or something, and maybe their, yeah. their financials are a little bit separate, but okay. I've never even knew that Ferrari was a publicly traded company. Uh, yeah, I think it went public. Uh, I'm gonna guess like 2015. Let me take a look. Oh, okay. So relatively recently, got it. Uh, yeah. So RACE race. That's mm-hmm. their ticker. Um, let's see. I'll go max time frame. And so it looks like it was October. Oh, wow, I was right. October 23rd, 2015 was their IPO. The IPO to 56.38, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, they're now trading at 183, so they've more than tripled. Wow. Um, over a five-year period. Okay, but, that's know, market's good. Been, market's been on fire anyway, but yeah, now they've done pretty well. Um, div yield of about 0.5, give or take. P ratio 57.45. Yeah, they uh they're just off the high. They they hit just under 200 dollars uh back in August. I bought Palantir because I guess they do data analysis or something or other for Scuderia Ferrari. So that's why yeah. I now have a, a vested interest in the success of Scuderia Ferrari. So yeah. Forza Ferrari, andiamo. 
<laughs> Does that mean I love you? I don't speak. I don't speak Italian. Oh, andiamo. <laughs> no, andiamo. I think it means like let's go. Oh, okay. Andiamo. Let's look it up. Dio. Does it mean God? I don't know. Uh, andiamo. Yeah. Grazie, ragazzi. <laughs> let's go or hurry up. That's what it oh, means. Okay. All right. Andiamo. All right, so at this time, I'd like to bring on our guest for the evening. This is going to be uh, Stefan De Panassi. Did I say that right? De Panassi, that's right. De Panassi, okay. Uh, so uh, Stefan is joining us here. Uh, of course, we're still doing this through uh, through Skype, um, but he was uh, nice enough to join us today. So a little bit of background here. Uh, I met Stefan uh, when I was instructing up at New Hampshire Motor Speedway for Extreme Experience. And just during our lunch break, I kind of overheard him talking a little bit about um, – you know, some, some stories about F1. And of course I'm, you know, eavesdropping a little bit and, and hearing all this, this thing. I was like, whoa, whoa, hold on. Like you, you had like full access. And he's like, yeah, you know, I, I knew Senna. We both, you know, we're from Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he just started, you know, going into some of these stories. And I thought this would be such a, a cool person to have uh, come share some of his stories with us, uh, with our listeners. So, um, you know, welcome. Thank you for being on. Thank you. Excellent. So I guess I'll just start right in with, um, you know, tell us a little bit about how you got into cars, you know, and, and sort of your progression in the motorsport. Yeah, my pleasure. So I um, grew up in Rio de Janeiro, uh, Dutch parents. That's why my, my features do not look Brazilian. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, I have, uh, uh, you know, been involved with cars through the family. My grandfather was a, a motorhead. Or a petrol head, I should say. <laughs> and um, and the passion there. My uncle used to work for Chrysler Motors in Brazil, where several of the developments, like the Charger Art, the Dodge Dodge, the Dodge Hillman that went to the UK, it was all being developed in Brazil. So, you know, I was always involved with cars. And then when I finally got my driver's license, um, I joined a group. Uh, ironically called uh, Street Racing Team. And um, in Brazil, in Rio in those days, the, the road, the, the, the racetrack was not uh, built, was under construction, by the way. And we would go to Sao Paulo at the same Interlago circus where the Formula One races are, had, uh, are held. And um, race Volkswagen, Volkswagen Beetles. Nice. So I started uh, Volkswagen Beetles Division One at Interlago Brazil for Street Racing Team. And um, in those days, the important part of how this whole thing came about, several of the reporters that I later met in Formula One were young journalists at the Interlagos Circuit. And because we are from Rio de Janeiro, Rio de Janeiro was always the most prestigious city in Brazil and whatnot. And people, wow, you know, these guys come from Rio to race here in Sao Paulo. And that was already, um, and we did well. That group was about 10 of us, uh, different cars, uh, including that Volkswagen Puma, you know, which a uh, uh, few people know about that. And um, later, um, I got um, to be a little smarter, decided to go study abroad, went to Montreal, Canada to study. And a few years later, the Grand, the Canadian Grand Prix moved from Mossport, which was held in Ontario, to Montreal. Yeah. And lo and behold, all my journalist friends are now professional Formula One journalists. Hey, Stefan, help us out here. And that's how the whole thing started. Um, uh, they used to do a little coverage. Um, if you guys remember Formula One in, in, the, in the mid-80s or 90s, 
they used to do a coverage of what the city was like, you know, in, in different countries and whatnot. And I was part of helping them, showing what the, what's the lifestyle in Canada, what's about Montreal, what's historic about Montreal, and how the racetrack was formed here uh, from an artificial island that uh, they took dirt from digging out the metro and they created the, 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 the amusement park and uh, managed world and the Xbox 67 and so on and so forth. And in exchange, I used to get a full access media pit pass to watch the Formula One race. Well, uh, then I get to go to the transmission booth, and because I was such a Formula One aficionado, the commentator was getting confused about, you know, who was getting into the pits or not, and I would actually run the paper because I knew all the drivers' helmets. You know, <laughs> oh, he's the one getting into the pits. And um, the technical commentator, uh, his name is Reginaldo Leme, He's like the uh, the Martin Brundle in uh, narrating Formula One. He's a technical guy, not the main narrator. The main narrator was Galvão Bueno. He was he's revered in Brazil as being the Murray Walker, um, you know, of the comics of Formula One. So Reginaldo and I, and, um, and uh, when Senna joined Coleman, um, in those days, if you recall, uh, the weekend prior was in Montreal, and the following one was Detroit. U.S. Grand Prix was in Detroit, and weekend prior. And they decided to do a documentary on the early life of Ayrton Senna in Formula One, and I helped them out. From that day on, Senna and I became friends. Kind of early, uh, every time he came to Montreal, we got together, we had dinners together, we talked. Um, I attended a couple of events in Mexico. Uh, we had been in, uh, in downtown Mexico a few times. And this was the exposure that I had with Senna. Now, I knew other drivers, Brazilians, you know, Felipe Massa, I've got to know very well. Rubens Barrichello, um, I actually was, uh, I had a friend who was um, kind of involved with his finances, um, and um, he had gotten rid of his manager, and I was one of the candidates to become his manager. And they decided to hire Fred, Fred De La Noche, who lived in California, but he's a childhood friend that we grew up together with street racing. Oh, wow. Wow. And He's the one who actually negotiated Ms. Barrichello's contract with Ferrari. Uh, but Fred was single. I was married. His father said, you know, I need uh, somebody to keep an eye on my son. Uh, not like a nanny, but, you know, tag along with me unattached. And they chose Fred to be. Um, so he moved. Fred moved to California to live in Ruben's apartment in Monaco. That's got to be a tough life. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, uh, but I also wish everybody else, Nelson P.K., uh, Pupo Moreno, the sub, the super sub that Indy likes, he used to race a couple of years with, um, with Benetton, um, Pedro Denise, Christian Filipaldi, I, I knew all the Brazilians who actually went through the Formula One circuit. Um, and I was never a spectator at the Grand Prix Montreal. Every year that global television to Brazil would come and broadcast, there was a full access Formula One pit pass for myself and my car for part of the Formula One paddock. That was cool. Nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I wanted to share something. Um, you know, Senna, um, what, uh, you know, having lived in Montreal and, and I apologize to the listeners. I'm, I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan. Senna was like a hockey player. You imagine a hockey player. He gets into the ice ring. He's a complete animal. He is uh, ruthless. He's vicious. He's aggressive. He's competitive. He wants to win. He gets out of there. He's a complete, fantastic, charismatic, friendly human. And that's the Senna I knew. You know, not many people had that 
privilege to know this side of Senna outside of the racetrack. And that was very, very touching and very unique. You know, to listen to him, his, um, his, uh, his views about, uh, you know, caring for the children, which, uh, you know, created the Ayrton Senna Foundation, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, enjoying life. Um, you know, I, I share one story, which is uh, a regret. You know, I don't have any regrets in life, but this one was one of them. Uh, in between the Grand Prix, he invited uh, us and some of the Brazilian media fans to go on his private jet um, spend the week in Turks and Caicos. And I had to work and I declined that. Years later, he died. Um, so that was uh, one thing I should have done uh, because work will always be there, you know. <laughs> yeah. But um, he was... Um, you know, he came and he stopped. There's, there's a picture that I sent to Chad that I'm actually talking to him. We just got out of the car and the media was around him. And he stopped talking. He came over to me and said, hey, how are you doing? Are we having dinner tonight or not? You know, that's the kind of attention a guy do that. And you guys know Senna, you know, inside the cockpit of a Formula One car, racing and, and doing magic. Uh, but I also knew the other side of Senna. And that's uh, very pri- privileged in that. That's excellent. So um, what about what about now? When did you start kind of are you still involved in F1 or when did you start getting away from that? I um, moved from Montreal with a job to New Hampshire um, and I think I attended one more uh, race while living already in Hampshire uh, after he died uh, something and then I stopped going out together. I still follow it. Um, I was invited two years ago uh, by the owner of Venturi to attend a Formula E race uh, in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and I was invited to um, witness the launch of the 2018 model uh, Formula E at the United Nations. In there was the owner of Venturi. I don't know who he is, who, if you guys know who he is. He's the second heir to the throne after Prince Rania. Um the Formula One, the Venturi team manager was Susie Wolf, just Toto Wolf's wife. Yeah. The uh-huh. MC for the launch was David Coulthard. Sitting in the audience was uh, uh, Jean Toe and his wife, Michelle Yeo, who was the, the girl who did the Bond movie with Pierce Brosnan on a motorcycle. <laughs> and okay. the new hire for the Venturi team, Formula One, none other than Trippi Massa. So That's it, yeah each other i knew him from the sauber days um and then he was just been appointed the, the uh, international director for the uh, fia cardi and uh i was working at segway my second stint at segway and we were developing a, a, a battery operated race car so i showed it to him and he was very impressed um uh but you know i have this link with these people and uh i was very privileged to have been invited you know an opening a launch of the formula e app at uh, the, the the United Nations in New York, and then I was a VIP guest for the Formula E race. But that was my last Formula One connection. Uh, and uh, right now, I'm just a, a good spectator. I carry lots of. Do you still do? Um, you know, outside of extreme experience, do you still do any driving? Oh, absolutely. I am um, the um, classroom instructor for Calm, which is a time trial race club. Based in New England, uh, that club is over 60 years old, uh, very prestigious, several uh, excellent drivers um, that race in endurance racing, uh, SCCA and so on. Our champions are actually, uh, uh, if not also, uh, top-line instructors. I've been a um, classroom instructor for over 14, almost 17 years now, 
and um, and I still enjoy this very much. I have a fantastic affiliation with that race club. Um, very good. We're we're like a big family helping each other out, enjoying perfecting the racing line. So first time, tell me a little bit. You know, uh, I, so just a little background here before racing was started to be viewed. You know, during this whole pandemic, you know, racing was kind of postponed for a while. Um, on the show here, we did a series called Watch It With Us where we would have our viewers watch something. It was almost like a book club sort of thing, but for racing movies or racing documentaries. And one of them, of course, was Senna. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that, that, that also kind of sparked uh, me to, to reach out to you for that too, because it's something, it's a topic that we had talked about heavily in the past. Um, wanted to, um, you know, let me ask you, when was the first time you met Senna and how did that go? First time I met Senna, I was obviously part of the TV crew, uh, and I was, I could say, was a tour guide. You know, we were in a convertible car. He was sitting on, on the top back, back seat being televised, and I was showing him the town. Um, and uh, he was very thankful for that. You know, and that, that I think we would never forget. And that's why we, we got along well. We talked. Um, you know, the, 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 he grew up in Sao Paulo. I grew up in Rio. This is like, you know, Boston, New York kind of friendly rivalry or Montreal, Boston kind of friendly rivalry or, you yeah. know, Australia, Sydney and Melbourne kind of rivalry. So, um, I, I, you know, Brazilians are the people from Rio, the jokers. I will joke a little bit with him and, and, uh, made him smile. You know, and, and I think that 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 kind of bond, you know, kept on going over the years. Uh, every time he would go to Montreal or when I would meet him in Mexico. Excellent. Um, favorite story, I would say, with uh, doesn't have to be Senna, but any any Formula One driver, anything come to mind? I, I remember you sharing a couple uh, when we first met. Um, uh, uh, absolutely hilarious story. I mean, the most hilarious story that I went, um, and you guys, uh, I watched a previous podcast, so, uh, you guys are gonna get a kick out of it. I was in Mexico, uh, Nelson PK and Nigel Mansell with the Williams team. And Nigel was a complete freak and scared about getting Montezuma's revenge in Mexico. So he brought <laughs> everything, everything, bread, water, everything for it. Murray Walker was his birthday, invited him to go to the British club and, and Nigel refused the meal and whatnot and um, Murray insisted. So he had one square inch of a roast beef from the British club in Mexico and that did him in. <laughs> oh my. So now imagine today qualifying and in those days <laughs> qualifying, it was one set of fast tires that would in three laps that would be destroyed. And I was sitting in a balcony that I could look at the paddock downstairs at the, at the pit garage, you know, from the transmission booth. And I see there was a huge arrow taped on the ground next to when Nigel would park the car. So what happened? This guy would go three fast laps, would go racing park right next to this arrow, and then he was racing already taking his suit off. And the arrow had a lot of his toilet. <laughs> he was literally shitting his pants. <laughs> Montezuma were having the runs, you know, running to the toilet every three laps, back in the car again, probably himself. Or, oh, you know, so I think he took pole position. <laughs> and, and then uh, during the start, he skipped the gear. And in my mind, I said, this guy probably had a shark. Missed <laughs> 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 the gear. Everybody passed it, and a few laps later retired. And that was probably, I have a picture of his Williams and Big Arrow's toilet. <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious. Oh, wow. Um, 
And um, another one that um, I think it was kind of foolish of me, but I, I got a kick out of it. Uh, Stefan Johansson was in the Ferrari, and I think he pitted in Montreal, um, and changed tires, and he left without looking, had a major crash right at pit out, major crash. And, you know, he was walking back, obviously still dazzled, still from disoriented. And um, I really asked him, what happened? <laughs> and he shook the face, his face, you know. Imagine, he got a balaclava out, his hair is all messed up, he's all flustered, and he was looking, his eye completely crossed, not understanding what the question was that. And there was uh, the most, you know, shocking, hilarious, puzzled face I've ever seen in my life in Formula One Oh, man. What I wouldn't give, man, to be, you know, in the action like that, seeing the drivers come by. Like, you always watch the, you know, TV and, you know, um, Sebastian Vettel spins and crashes, picks up his wing, and then he's walking back to Paddock, you know, like, just to kind of pick his brain in that quick, you know, 50-yard walk that he's got. Just to, like, well, it's going through your mind right now. You know, so many things. So, that's great. That's awesome. Um, Kyle, did you do anything you want to jump in on? No, I mean, I, I, I really, like... uh I mean, more, I guess what's going through my mind mostly is, is just like, all right, well, I mean, how, take us through your own racing career. Did you do any driving or racing, um, kind of after, um, after the street racing team? And then were you always, because uh, it, it just seems like there's three, kind of, there's three parts to your story that you were talking about. You were saying, um, you race in the street team in, uh, uh in brazil and then you went to school in montreal and you were involved in uh formula one a little bit and now you are an instructor so was there like overlap from the formula one years and instructor when did you begin instructing did you do any kind of club racing uh in the 90s 2000s uh, did, did you go to McGill? Was that the school you went to? No, I went to the, um, uh, it was, uh, I started with Loyola, it was Loyola College, and uh, they had to merge because of the French law in Quebec, and it became Concordia University, so I'm a Concordia University graduate, but I brag about, I studied at Loyola campus. Okay, so, yeah, my, my whole family's from uh, from Canada, so I'm up there often. But uh, it's a very good question. I did have a hiatus. Uh, so I started for that, you know, friends from Rio Street Racing Volkswagen One Division. I did two races, completely against my father's will. But <laughs> he, he got uh, happy because the first race I drew my position out of the hat. I started in 40. Can you imagine? Almost 55 cars on the racetrack, all Volkswagen, and I wound up in 11th place. Nice. And second was I started in fifth, and I wound up in sixth. Uh, and that was pretty pretty good. And then yeah. About it. Um, and then I went to study, uh, to work. So the, the, the racing hobby career, if you like, was put on hold until I arrived in Montreal, uh, in New Hampshire, sorry, um, in the early 90s. And I started WK Karting, uh, from New Hampshire, New England chapter. Um, got me third place in the Vietnam Heavy classes for a couple of years. And, um, then I got married, uh, in 2000, started, uh, uh, time trial with Kong. And I'm still with Kong today. Uh, four time champion, uh, 
several runner-up, enormous amounts of podium finishes. You see my, uh, I'm not sure if this is going to be broadcast or not. There are a bunch of trophies in my office, the space my wife allows me my uh, memorabilia. And um, <laughs> um, I'm still active uh, competing uh, with Calm and Time Trial. And I occasionally help out with other clubs and, of course, extreme experience uh, driving and instructing uh, exotic cars. But I did have a break. Uh, in between uh, fully active uh, in race instruction uh, since uh, 2000. Okay, what's the format for the time trials? I mean, because I'm like, is it because I know autocross is kind of a time trial, as is rallying. So what what's the format for the time trials that you you've done and that you're involved with? Yep, very good question. Um, our club have a two-day form. Day one is licensed driver's practice students. Students pair are paired with instructor. Of course, with COVID right now, we are aware of the lead follow instructing. But, you know, traditionally, we do classroom sessions where I lead the classroom. Um, we have groups of students. Um, I usually follow them uh, whenever possible on the track. Uh, with a GoPro camera, we download, discuss dynamics, how to improve the racing line. And day two, uh, students get, get cleared for solo, can practice with the licensed drivers in the morning. In the afternoon, we have the time trial race. The cars are classified by the, uh, categorized by class, depending on what they have for performance parts and so on. We have divisions divided into touring class, street preparers, performance cars, and, um, uh, cars get, uh, stayed to run groups. Uh, it's about our time, uh, and they are on a racetrack in about 20 second intervals. So you are naturally not competing wheel to wheel, and they do your best three laps, uh, uh, the fastest laps you get classified or distributed and so on. Um, several racetracks, uh, throughout North America and in North America, we also go to Mont Tremblant in Canada and Mont Quebec. We go to Canadian, uh, Tire Motorsport Park, go to Mossport near, uh, Toronto, Ontario. We go as south as, as Watkins Glen. We use the tracks around New England, uh, New Hampshire, um, Motor Speedway, Palmer Motorsports, Thompson, uh, Speedway in Connecticut. Um, these are pretty much the tracks that we are currently frequent. Uh, it's about seven to a year. Sometimes oh, wow. Google events on the same track, uh, um, like Palmer, we one configuration clockwise and then counterclockwise. In New Hampshire, we do chicane, chicane, and then north chicane, south oval. Mm. Okay. I didn't know Palmer could be uh, run both directions. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and I um, actually was um, the first one. We know the the owner manager, who actually was former instructor and instructor with Calm, and um, I um, have access to the track, and I developed the classroom material for the clockwise configuration for Calm. And I okay. was the first ones also to develop the classroom the track narrative for Thompson, Connecticut, when they opened because I have privileged relationship track. Oh, very nice. If you go to Palmer, you'll see my, my former race car is parked there because uh, I sold it to the person who drives the wrecker for uh, for Palmer. So if you see a white Nissan 240 with number 63 on it, that's my old car. Okay. Uh, <laughs> because the instructor also. Oh, did he? Okay. Who's the chief instructor? Is uh, Chris here. Oh, I know the name. I haven't met him, though. Okay. Um, and uh, and we were talking earlier. I'll actually I'll be in New Hampshire Motor Speedway in a week for the Lemons race. Uh, so I'll be racing in a Volkswagen Golf with a turbo engine. I'll be there this Saturday. Uh, awesome, Kyle. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I I have more more questions, but yeah, go ahead. Have a have a go if you're. No, you go, ahead. go ahead. Take it. Um, away. are you? 
kind of um you're are you do you know um or are you linked with any of the other kind of uh motorsport or enthusiasts uh people in New Hampshire like uh, O'Reilly Rally School um or uh Walt Siegel he he's the the custom motorcycle maker uh name is familiar but uh, no I'm not I'm not um uh, connected them no okay okay I wanted to also share with you that um, um, Chad probably saw my car. Uh, I, I raced a, a BMW, and I did a wrap that uh, is a copy of Senna's helmet, and my license plate in the Amber is Senna plus one. That nice. is of, of the guy. <laughs> yeah. What What made you decide to remain in New Hampshire um, or in North America rather than going back to Brazil? That's simple. I got married. <laughs> oh okay. Uh where where's your is your wife uh, Canadian, American? My wife is French? A... Okay, okay. Yeah, I see. Got a French Okay, okay, I see. Yeah, a lot of I mean um I I used to work in Eastern Connecticut until this summer. Um but a lot of a lot of French Canadians in New Hampshire, a lot of French Canadians coming down to the eastern part of uh Connecticut because I used to I used to be a, uh, a property manager in Eastern Connecticut and I would rent out, uh, apartments and a lot of people had French, French last names. So I do have a lot of, a lot of people coming down. Yeah. But, uh, you know, my main line of business, uh, I still, uh, do a lot of business in Latin America, of course, because of the pandemic, but regularly I would be traveling, uh, to Latin America, Brazil, and also I represent, uh, the Canadian region as well in, in the company I work at. That's my main job. You know? So yeah, I'm still very much connected. I still have family in Brazil, um, and, uh, and I go there, you know, as often as I can. Okay. Stefan, I want to kind of go back to something you said about your BMW, um, because I know you, you started sharing a story with me about your helmet as well. Yep. Uh, if you want to share that as well with us. The the helmet I, I had, uh, which obviously the rating has expired, um, I had it painted uh, in Sao Paulo, Brazil, by the same person who painted Ayrton Senna's helmet. I got to know him, uh, Sid Mosca, he, he's since passed away, but... His son, Alan, continues the legacy. He used to paint uh, about 95% of all the Formula 1 drivers in those days. I think he still paints most of them. He is, of course, paints the famous yellow Senna helmet that is uh, sold through the Ayrton Senna Foundation. And um, because uh, they knew I knew Ayrton Senna, um, my helmet has the official S from Senna authorized by the Senna Foundation uh, on my helmet, and that's pretty cool. Um, I know that you guys are not broadcasting this live, but here is the Senna nice. on the helmet, um, and uh, now it's becoming a, an ornament here in my office. <laughs> All right. Do you... I can tell you that. <laughs> not surprised. Um, do you follow um, any... Uh, motorcycle racing, MotoGP at all? I saw some MotoGP. Um, I, I don't follow a lot. Is that I'm already hogging, you know, the television, you're watching balloons and whatnot. And I know I have a lot of chores to do at home. 
Uh, <laughs> Two-wheel two racing um, is not really my, my, my strengths. Uh, I, I am considered in this household crazy enough in four wheels. Um, and motorcycle is something that I, you know, got 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 to like and whatnot. I knew there was um, the occasional Brazilian uh, racer that was uh, very competitive. Um, mm -hmm. I saw some very crazy stunts from uh, motorcycle racing. Uh, uh, the um, was a three-way, you know, dodging the last uh, all the way to the fish lap. These are the occasional. Um, Video clips that my friend, still from Street Racing Team, we have a WhatsApp group that uh, sent me those video links, and I watched that instead. But uh, I'll be honest with you, motorcycle is something that I watch uh, frequently. Um, neither I watch uh, NASCAR, I'm more of a Formula One, uh, Le Mans, uh, in racing, uh, Petit Le Mans, these kind of uh, races. Sometimes even Formula Two, or Formula Three, there's some uh, some uh, rising stars. Uh, uh, in Brazil, uh, ironically, um, Barrichello's of son is, uh, Emerson Fittipaldi's grandson is, uh, two of them racing, um, and, um, and that's, that's kind of like, I follow that, that path instead of watching motorcycles. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I understand the draw to following the, the, the young talent kind of coming through the ranks. It's always, I think that's, in general, in motor, for motorsports in general, that's always part of the, the fun of being a fan is, is just following people's career. Um, and it's something that we've talked about before on the podcast is that unlike other sports, um, I mean, a lot of times with the professionals, you don't know who they are until they reach the big leagues. Um, whereas with the, the motorsport racers, you know, they start their careers, uh, early and you can kind of follow them in their late teenage years and into adulthood and through until they retire, basically. Um, question. So you, you sent a picture, um, of you and the legendary Jackie Stewart. Is there a, a story behind that? Yeah. Uh, Jackie, um, uh, usually in June, that's Jackie's birthday. So he'll be in Montreal. He was a commentator, uh, and obviously an ambassador for Ford Motor Company. Uh, he would arrive with a limo, track and whatnot. And we were introduced by a mutual friend. And that mutual friend is a childhood friend I grew up with who was studying medicine, uh, and whose mentor uh, was it Watkins, which is oh, a very, wow. very good for Jackie. Uh, so, mutual friend, um, I was invited to Chateau Champlain, Montreal, uh, where he stayed and helped, um, celebrate his birthday. And the hotel had given one of these Magnum champagne bottles, the same one that they had in the podium. And, um, the cake had a shape of a, of a Tiro, uh, Formula One. Uh, and it was just him, uh, my friend, uh, and, uh, and I, and, um, that's one thing I, I want to share with you. With Jackie, I asked him a question. I'm not sure if you guys ever realized that one picture with him holding the steering wheel on a nine feet position, but his knuckles was resting in the steering wheel. And I always curious, is why he, I had to ask the question to Jackie, why would, and I said, obviously I never did that. I wanted to actually hold this turn, but during the straight, I found that I relaxed, resting my thumbs, the ninth, lifting the fingers off the steering and resting you know, on top of the steering wheel during the straights to help me release, uh, you know, relax the muscle. Huh. That's yeah. good. Never knew that. And if you see mm. some pictures of Jackie actually racing straight, you see that his knuckles are actually, you know, resting, uh, but he's still holding his thumb on the ninth. Yeah. Very attentive guy. Every time he saw me on track, he was there over Santa and whatnot. He would come by and say hi. Another, another gentleman, you know, super nice guy. I think I need to, to take up that strategy because I, especially with karting, like after, you know, 
10 minute session of cardio, my hands are just from gripping the wheel so hard. Right. Uh, with the race car, I'm a lot more relaxed, but I feel like with karting, I'm just like, you know, it's so aggressive. <laughs> and um, use the pull down effect. Right? Yeah, yeah, pull down, use the lats. Yeah, right. I teach that too when I when I when I talk to people. I say milk in the cow, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. So I mean, you, you sent me a ton of pictures. Any other stories kind of come to mind on this that uh, um, you want to share? Nelson Piquet was a uh, was a uh, was a uh, was a comedian. He was a comedian. <laughs> He liked to mess with people's heads, especially the Formula One drivers. Um, uh, I, I don't want to sound uh, macho, but you know, in the 80s, uh, he was racing with Brabham, and um, he obviously got invited to go soccer. In Senna was in soccer. There used to be a soccer between the reporters and the Formula One drivers. And, uh, <laughs> and the thing is uh, that eventually he got in the butt because uh, some Formula One drivers got kicked and hurt themselves. Um, but, um, uh, and I would play soccer in media, uh, and, um, there was one bikini contest. And like I said, I don't want to sound like, uh, but in those days it was acceptable. And I was sitting in the same row as Nelson and Nelson knew I was Brazilian, you know, and a girl would pass on the, on the, on the walkway and would look at me, you know, kind of go like this or go like this, you know, start rating them. And I said, Oh, okay. You know, like, you know, I grew up in Rio, been there, done that, you know, eighties <laughs> and whatnot. I've seen it, I've seen it all. But yes, he would kind of make mockery of this and, uh, and he would look at me, what do you, like saying, what are you saying? But, the other thing is, if you recall, a race that Nigel Mansell was leading in Montreal, and he was waving at the crowd before the finish line. He killed yep. the skip button. Yeah. And the one who won was Nelson. Nelson was racing for Benetton, and Luciano Benetton was still uh, involved in racing. And I was there uh, at the uh, at the Benetton garages drinking champagne with him. That was privilege. <laughs> that was cool. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's a, a, a famous uh, oops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what it what happened? Oops, and I wound up I wound up in the garages uh, with CK, Luciano Benetton, Moreno was there too. Moreno's a very good friend with Senna, with PK, sorry. And um, and that night, <laughs> that night I was having dinner with Senna, and we went to a Portuguese restaurant in Montreal. Very exclusive, and it was the upper floor, was only kind of reserved. And we walk up there with, with an entourage of about 12, 14 people. And Piquet, who won the Grand Prix, was there together with Jean Alessi and his wife. His wife was Jean, his wife is Japanese. And they were having dinner in a small table on the corner. And that main commentator from the Brazilian TV told Eric and Senator, aren't you going to say, you know, congratulations to. Uh, to PK, he won the race. He said, fuck him, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. But Nelson was very humble. You know, it's funny, the guy was always joking, but that night he was very humble, having a dinner on his own and um, and celebrate, you know, well, Senna, who didn't finish the race, you know, had 14 people having dinner with him. You know, it was a big party. That's incredible. What had, what had happened in that race? What was the, 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 the oops? The oops was that Nigel Mansell was waving at the crowd before he actually crossed the finish line. He actually hit the kill switch of the car and the car shut down. Oh, no. Yeah. And uh, obviously couldn't get the car restarted and didn't finish the race. Uh-oh. Yeah. Celebrating too early. Yikes. <laughs> Excellent. What are, your, uh, what are your thoughts on current F1? You say you still follow it. Uh, yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big F1 I, fan. I think that uh, I'm obviously... 
there are not many competitors that have cars that are, imagine, a Santa day, a PK days, or even a Fittipaldi days and whatnot. You have three, four, five drivers that you know, any one of them could be a champion. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and still today, you know, you have uh, one big runner with massive amounts of money, uh, you know, behind development and whatnot. And I wonder what if, you know, if we had other teams that had equal power plants, equal aerodynamics, and so on, what kind of the outcome would have been? Uh, you know, I sometimes, uh, you know, my parents have died, so I'd see for Max Verstappen. And uh, I imagine what would have happened if Max had a car that was comparable to a Mercedes. What kind of, you know, outcome would that be? Uh, similarly, some of those young drivers that are ascending now, uh, Carlos Sainz and Pierre Gasly, and, uh, you know, those guys are, uh, you know, in contention for anywhere from third to uh, to seventh place. And that, that call it the middle of the pack. And that's unfortunate that they're now grading Formula One as, you know, the first two finishers and then the rest, the, the, the rest are all, you know, second class, uh, because, uh, of budget, because of et cetera, et cetera. So it's unfortunate. Do you um, think the 2021 rules are going to help with that because they're doing budget restrictions? Well, I, I was recently listening to uh, Luca Degrassi, for example. Luca Degrassi is a free driver, but he's very smart. He was also was a Pirelli uh, tire test driver and whatnot. And, and he was saying that, no, that is not going to help uh, because you cannot deflate the enormous F1 budget. And he was comparing this, for example, with Formula E. Formula E started with a conservative platform and they had limitations because they, they, that sport is growing. But you cannot deflate the sponsorship. What are you going to do? Only sponsor one side of the car because there's budget cuts? You can't do that. Uh, so it, it's too late for that. Uh, so I think Formula One will continue being the way it is. Um, and it's going to have one side is going to be crazy money being thrown at. And whereas the other teams are going to be, you know, fighting from anywhere, like I said, from fourth to, to seventh place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be it. I learned, for example, uh, Chad, no, I, I used to race uh, an Alfa Romeo GV and I have a, a, an inkling for Alfa Romeo. I, I learned from a friend of mine who was one of the, the, the Formula One reporters, Alfa Romeo doesn't have a wind tunnel for the, they have no development. So no wonder they are in the background. Yeah. Haas and, and some other teams. So yeah. money talks, money will continue to talk in Formula One and that's the way it's not, they're not going to change. They can impose things. Um, one great example was disappointed to see the rapid deterioration of the Pirelli tires. Um, why can't they make a tire uh, that will last as much as a tank of gas in a, in a race, uh, in a Formula One race? They manage now to stop refueling because yeah. of the kinetics, because of the hybrids, uh, because of the batteries, the boosts and whatnot. Why can't they make a tire that will last an entire race? What would that be? How, how would you change the strategy if you do that? That's how you limit and trying to equalize everybody, but not by, by cutting budgets. That's not going to happen formal, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, and uh, something that I had, um, sorry. Oh, yeah. Something that we talked about recently, Chaz, is, is, you know, what if Formula One just tried, you know, gave Pirelli a heads up, like, all right, next year, Monaco, no pit stops, you know, develop a tire that's going to last the full race at Monaco with no pit stops. And um, I know that, 
Chaz especially, uh, more than I do, likes to see the driver talent. Um, but I, you know, even even though we have disagreements about traction control in Formula One, I mean, at the same time, you know, if if uh, the Formula One, if the driver is, you know, constantly asking his his team over the radio back and forth, like, what should I do? You know, and there's this constant instruction from from the reading of the data it's it's like the technology is being fed to the driver and then the driver is doing something rather than the strategy and everything being left 100% to the driver so maybe if communication you know in addition to the tire situation maybe the communication limited between the pit and the and the driver i mean they still don't they still use pit boards in formula 1 they still they use pit boards, yeah. Yeah, it's like what just keep the pit board. Right. <laughs> I totally agree with you. I think that there was one plan that was so much electronics that was before they banned the uh, launch controls and whatnot that the telemetry and uh, and the feedback was actually coming from the factory. Most of them in England, by the way, you know, on these giant rooms with all those TV screens and every sensor, everything was being monitored passed on to feedback and telling the race driver who was actually being a robot, you know, telling them what to do. Uh, so, yeah, it took the fun out of it. And I do agree with you that, you know, we should kind of curb these things and leave the, 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 the raw talent, the raw talent of a driver to do his thing, man versus machine, you know. Well, I love that yeah. Kimmy line, you know, leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. He's, he's, exactly. you know, keep your tires warm, Kimmy. You know, at the restart, we got it. He's like, leave me alone. Just let me drive the car. Right. And that's, that's what I love. Yeah. To what, to what degree? And this is, I'm asking this more out of ignorance because I really just don't know. Um, to what extent does the hybrid, the factor of the hybrid engines, uh, play? Because when I, you know, comparing Formula One to, kind of its its cousin or sibling MotoGP um i mean MotoGP has been able to implement a lot of rules um that have actually been effective over the last 10 years of creating a competitive field um and but one of the biggest things is um it's not one of the biggest things is that they they use just naturally aspirated gas engines they don't have hybrids they don't have turbos or anything like that so is the hybrid engine era like one of the big factors in uh, in this? It's a huge factor. Um, let me give you a comparison. As the batteries evolving, like like when I went the launch of the Formula E in uh, in, uh, in Brooklyn, New York, the next generation car. Remember Formula E? It had two cars. Do so many laps, you jump out of the car, jump in another one. Yes. Next generation, only one car. The battery, and I used to work at Segway, so I know all about lithium batteries. The, the battery became so efficient, evolved so much. And you put in, in the batteries in the Formula One car have managed to drastic fuel consumption, thus the car is lighter. Flash 190 liters for a race. Now they're using about 100 liters. So, yeah. And wow. the beer is equal to a kilo, so 90 kilos, which is 180 pounds and change, that's in weight reduction that the battery has now to give additional propulsion to the car. And that's not uniform, though. That's not across the teams. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Because I was going to say, you know, one thing I noticed is, uh, like, it can't just be engine because, um, you know, I remember I was watching the, the spa qualifying. I just remember seeing Lewis Hamilton's car coming through Ravage. 
And I'm like, wow, he's just going through so much faster than everybody else is. Um, and it was, it was just like insane. Like I know he's got the DAS and other stuff. I was like, he's just, the car is just on rails in that corner, but okay. So if we're, if we're cutting a few kilos out of that car, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, especially when it comes to race time. So, wow. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like, and, and this is going to be a dumb question, but I just want for clarification, like, so every, all the, all the power units, uh, that each manufacturer is using kind of, everybody has to develop their own hybrid engine. So some manufacturers or some works teams are going to have a big advantage over others because they're just going to have a better power unit. Well, you are given a set of specs by FIA. How you develop that is a differentiation now between one, one Formula One car and the other. Yes. Okay. Do you think, I mean, the, I was actually listening to our um, podcast episode that was Formula One versus MotoGP. And like, do you think that if in Formula One, if a factory team, excuse me, if a works team was basically forced to give factory equipment to a private team, so let's say Mercedes basically had a third factory car, but it, it, it was a Williams team car and Max Verstappen was driving it, you know, what would, you know, you would have to, if you force Mercedes to, to split their budget, by providing equal equi- equal equipment to a uh, a private team or a junior team, um, do you think that would make the field more competitive? Well, uh, yes and no. So let, let's get some examples here. So you have Ferrari and you have the Alfa Romeo team worlds apart. They share the same track. They, you know, there's so much you can actually legally share. Then you have um, um, the Red Bull and the Alfa Tauri. Used to be the former Toro Rosso. Uh, don't tell me that Adrian Newing, the, the aerodynamics designer, has some influence in, 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 in both teams. There's got to be some flap that, that have some similarities, but again, you know, there's so much you can share. Um, now, Mercedes, they call in the, the racing point, the, the pink Mercedes team. Um, you know, that, that kind of uh, analysis. And now McLaren have Mercedes engines, and, uh, but, but not, not every... You know, to, to your point, no, the answer is no, they do not share. Look at the Haas team with Ferrari engines, they're going backwards. Um, uh, you know, so there's no, no shared development and whatnot. You have, you have the same engine, you have the same engine specs and whatnot, but what you do with that in your, in the platform of your car and the chassis and suspension and all the other components, uh, there's so much you can share and, uh, there, there is a major differentiation. Major mm-hmm. Yeah, but if if there was more sharing going on, uh, like a closer relationship between the factory teams and the and the private teams, would that make the field more competitive? I I think it could. Whether this is is going to be ever realistic, uh, I doubt it. You know, if if for example, uh, FIA would say. All right, whoever sponsors an engine to a private racing casing point will be Mercedes with uh, McLaren, Mercedes with Racing Point, and then Ferrari with Alfa Romeo, Ferrari with, uh, with um, um, uh, Haas and whatnot. And let's, let's have a panel, a committee of these private racing units to further develop components and so on to enhance additional performance in the car to make ourselves more competitive. If this were to be possible, uh, I'm sure 
that the likes of Mercedes and Ferrari would like to see more sponsor of what they have done to contribute private in those private cars than, you know, in case they destroy it. Let's say if a Haas team benefited and got into a podium position because they used Ferrari components and so on, if I was with Ferrari, I want to make sure that I have a name Ferrari on that Haas team. Yeah. So what do you, so what do you think is the answer to, to fix the, the Mercedes problem? Um, I, I don't know. You know, why not? Let's see who the best driver is. Put everybody with Mercedes and let's see what happens. Yeah. You know, there are Pirelli. Pirelli's entire year, Michelin, uh, you know, Pirelli was a mix and so on. So, okay, now, now we have one tire sponsor. Why don't we make one engine sponsor? Mm-hmm. And then, and then you combine it and see what happens from there. And now it becomes a war of Ireland or so on and so forth. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I think what, what might end up happening is just the, the, the field is just so uncompetitive that people lose interest because i mean formula one is sustainable because it's a form of entertainment so if people are not entertained by formula one then they won't watch it and if they won't watch it then that's not gonna then sponsors are gonna go away and when the sponsors go away teams go away and you know maybe mercedes pulls out you know in in a few years because it's just not worth it to them uh you know the value is just not not there and then then you know, we, it's like it's got to get worse. It got to get got to get worse, and then it's going to come back up in competitiveness. Because you know, I assume some private teams will still be around. Um, you know, like they were in the '80s and '90s, like Williams and McLaren is kind of a semi-private team because they just make the chassis. I don't consider McLaren a factory team necessarily, like Ferrari or Mercedes. But you know, the private teams will still be around in Formula One, but you know, factory teams might end up leaving if, if the value is not there because of the lack of spectators. Uh, yeah, but I'm sure there's always be others take over um, as they have evolved. So um, I, I think that, for example, if you, um, uh, you know, Honda is playing out there, um, and obviously um, they uh, were committed to um, getting better carbon carbon footprint and whatnot, uh, but they will con- stay committed. But I'm sure that somebody's gonna gonna take over this, um, and uh, so there's always somebody who'll be over. And it has been an evolution. And you're right. Granted, there's been some up and downs, but I think has been minor ups and downs. And um, and uh, what you said about uh, the race Formula One kind of quote unquote losing interest. Uh, I don't know. You know. They have some young drivers that are aspiring. Uh, I think I respect every Formula One driver because you need to. Super license for Formula One, no matter how bad it is, still a very talented driver. These guys leave Formula One and they're going to do endurance race or other things and they become champions on that category easily. Mm-hmm. So they are talented, all of them. Just got to give them the right package. Case in point is saying that imagine that everybody had the same car in Formula One, what would have happened? That's what I like when. Oh, 100%. Things, you know, that, that puts an equalizer for everybody. And you see, now you see some guys. You know, that were backpackers, you know, heading out to the front because, you know, that's where you show talent. Yeah, I mean, you saw that with, with Senna before he got screwed over at the end there. It was a Monaco, the rain, and when he was with Tolman and, you know, about to about to take first place until they, they called it short. But, yeah, that's yeah. exactly. Um, actually, Lewis, I feel like, does really well in the rain, though. Right. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I, I agree, though. I think uh, I, I love I love watching a, a rain race any day. 
Yeah, and then and then Senna in 1993, where they had a a the second level uh, Ford engine because the first level was with Benetton with Schumacher uh, in Donington Park. That's still the most watched epic pass in the rain. Five cars in the first lap uh, in downpour on a track that everybody says that's one of the most difficult tracks to pass. Yeah. Uh, and here he goes and passes five cars, led the lap. Did you guys know how he got his fastest lap? How's that? He actually calculated and talked to the FIA directors because in those days you could come into the pits at full speed. And he asked, does when you go through the pit lane, does it count as a lap? So he literally went into the pits full speed, shortened the track, and got the fastest lap of the race. Wow. They just did that recently in Formula E um, a couple of races ago. They were under yellow flag, and the speed limit for yellow flag is the same as pit lane, and pit lane is shorter than the actual track. So I think like three or four cars pulled into the pit lane and then ended up, you know, shortening their distance. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so, I mean, you've been following Formula One for a long time. Who is really the most standout driver for you? Who you think is, is you know, because there's people like Lewis Hamilton, but being in the fastest car, it's tough to tell how he would actually compete with other people. Where, you know, Verstappen, he... He consistently is beating his teammates in "quote unquote" the same car. So, who, you know, who really stands out to you in the last few decades? To me, to me has been uh, Max uh, Verstappen. I have to say that, uh, and I do uh, see the likes of uh, Lando Norris, Carlos Sainz, and Pierre Gasly kind of, you know, you know, putting their 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 challenges over there. Uh, I happen to to go to. Uh, you know, Montremblant, Montremblant owned by Lawrence Stroll, which is Lance Stroll's father, and he used to right. practice there. Uh, and, you know, Lance has always been uh, seen as uh, a kid who came from well-to-do and everything was given to him. Uh, uh, that's true. Uh, he may not have raw talent like uh, Kimi Raikkonen or raw talent like uh, you know, the drivers who... Um, who could do well, like Fernando Alonso, you know, or Schumacher with the cars broken down, or even Senna was only one here, and he was leading, you know, the race and whatnot. This is over and above talent, as you call, but, you know, Lance is a good driver. Yeah. But He gets a bad rap for being, you know, the, the, the privileged kid, but, yeah, I mean, he holds his own against, uh, you know, Sergio and everyone else, so. And Sergio is also very good, very good driver, very talented as well. You know, very aggressive. Um, but you know, if I if I were to exclude, you know, the Hamiltons and the Vettels and whatnot, and I say pick one Stefan who actually would you know watch and follow, I have to. Say, yeah. So you know, you're putting a race team together, unlimited budget, and you have to pick a driver. You know, who's gonna drive the best? You know, drive the car better than anyone else? You know, besides yourself, who do you put behind the wheel? <laughs> yeah, and that would. Yeah. Be my- yeah, so I uh, I don't make it hidden that I'm not a big Max fan. Um, I do think he's probably I, I would probably agree with you. He's one of the most talented drivers. I mean, he basically lapped you know uh, Pierre Gasly when Pierre Gasly was driving alongside of him, and then Pierre Gasly just won you know Monza and and, and you know way above Albon. Although Albon's a, a terrific driver, I actually really like Albon. Uh, but just uh, yeah, just it, it's more of his interview style and stuff like that that I don't like about him. I think he's a super talented driver. Um, you know, him and Lewis, I feel like when things aren't going their way, they just they, they come across a bit like crybabies. And I love I mean, I know I made like every Formula One page, but uh, what Danny Ricardo said in the other race, right? 
where, you know, they show Hamilton. Hamilton, you got, you know, two five-second penalties, and he's like, oh, this is awful, blah, blah, blah. And then they show, you know, the, the radio transmission. Ricardo, you have a five-second penalty. He's like, yeah, makes sense. Guess I'll just have to drive faster. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, and that's... Uh, love Daniela Ricardo's attitude. Such a positive guy. Yep. You know, he should be a role model for several drivers who are crybaby. Yeah. And actually, so somebody pulled up the, the lap charts, and they, they look, you know, here's where he says, I should drive faster. And, like, every lap after that was way faster than the other one. So <laughs> he kept shooting his word, too. <laughs> disappointed he did not go to Ferrari. Yeah. Honest, well, I mean, given how Ferrari's been doing, um, he's probably I, – I, I'm, I'm a big McLaren fan, and I think McLaren is on the right trajectory to be a top three team. Yeah. Um, and I think Ferrari – I've been a Ferrari fan. I really love Charles Leclerc. Um, but uh, I just – I don't know. I don't know what it is with them. Yeah. I think Maybe they were all cheating last year and they had to fix it. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it needs to come from the top now. It has happened before, you know, but we'll see. Wish him the best. I feel like my knowledge of Formula One is is, is not good enough to ask a lot of specific questions, especially about the, the era in which you were involved more in the paddock and so forth. So the only questions I have are not very special. You know, like I, I'm just a little curious about your work at Segway because you know, what's Segway all about? Because they are known for their mach- that one machine. Uh, but then I think they got sold to a different company and now they do like scooters, electric scooters, and they have this electric go-kart kind of thing. Um, so I, that's, that's the only thing, but that's really not that important. <laughs> no. And by the way, the cart I was talking to the Masa was not the way they put that. That's his attachment. The, the Chinese version of the Segway that did that, you know. Ours was a competitive card that was developed by some of the original employees that I was part of, uh, that when I was worked there for the second time was already owned by the Chinese company that somebody took upon it and called me and saying, You were involved with it because I knew carding. He says, Yeah. So, can you can you tell what you're doing? And then he put some other stuff, new batteries and all that. You know, we're ripping about 120 miles an hour in the park. That thing is strong. Wow. Yeah, because I think, um, I mean, uh, as battery technology gets gets cheaper, and actually last week I was mentioning this to our our uh, guest from last week, but there's a company that's making e-bikes in southern Connecticut called Spike Spark Cycle Works, and they, I guess they they have their own uh, electric drivetrain for a new electric moped that they make, and so. I, when I think about electric and the potential of electric vehicles, uh, my mind goes to making affordable race vehicles for kids, whether it's carts or, um, or, uh, or bikes. Um, you know, there's the gas versions of the bikes and the carts, but I think if we can have, uh, you know, low maintenance, uh, low modification, simple, relatively inexpensive, uh, uh, electric motors for these vehicles, it might make karting and karting and mini moto racing more attractive to families with younger kids. Yeah. So there are some uh, racetracks, uh, karting tracks that are using uh, battery-operated uh, carts, um, very powerful. And um, but I, I just want to correct you one thing: the the batteries are not that not getting cheaper. Their batteries are getting with higher autonomy. The price is the same. Uh, mm. 
comparison I can give you there because I used to work with Yakima Rex and to go to the bike shop when e-bikes were involved and so on. So the lithium battery price pretty much is the same today. It's just they've gone better. You know, better in autonomy, better in the chemical composition and whatnot. But mm -hmm. uh, there is no price reduction there. Uh, you know, from from what I've seen in the market. Yeah, I I I know I can see what you're saying and what you mean because uh, when I look online for the components of retrofitting my bicycle and making it an e-bike, the actual motor is very cheap, but the battery is expensive. It's like seven or eight hundred dollars for something that is going on this. Um, but at the same time, when I think about a, a cart that, you know, a cart or a mini moto purpose built, you know, some of those are running for thousands of dollars. Uh, you know, the battery might be expensive, but it's cheaper than a lot of these gas engines, plus all of the fuel that a family would have to put in there, you know, maybe coolant as well, oil, like it's, it just adds up. And if you can just, uh, you know, plug in plug in the battery charge it up for the race and then be ready for the race and you don't have to worry about fluids um that i think that can make it more uh feasible for a family uh over a, a season of cart racing for yeah. example uh, the the challenge now as i was discussing the masa he said there was another company i think it was bosch who was developing carts for being actually homologated in fia cart racing battery operator um the same dilemma that that battery is a hazard material, as you know, mm. for airplanes, even those Samsung phones catching fires or or the roller, um, some roller, um, self-balancing rollers uh, would, would actually catch fire. Catch fire. So in racetracks today, uh, except on high end or we do Formula E or or, or the hybrids, the fire suppression systems that are in racetrack, typical racetrack, are not sufficient put off the fire in case of a we call a thermal issue a fire in a battery uh, and that's the problem about uh, not having enough uh, battery operated carts for for racing mode as you were explained I would agree with you that it probably be comparison overall compare uh, I need to maintain this cart and I have to buy fuels and lubricants and whatnot in a year it costs me so much if you look at your overall package apples to apples Probably a battery-operated car would be more economical. However, the facilities that will uh, uh, support these need to beef up in order to have enough safety for the fire suppressors to, to actually um, become in. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I have not heard that before. I did not know that. Makes sense. I wouldn't want to uh, have a Samsung in my pocket, let alone be surrounded by one. So. Right. So that's that's the issue. But but uh, you know the, the batteries have gone uh, incremental finally uh, in in its autonomy. And it used to be the Achilles heel when e-bikes start getting into the market. Uh, you know a few years ago. Mm. What sort of fire suppressant is is needed for these? You know, the, uh, a lithium battery when it catches fire is incandescent. Was it 1400 degrees or I don't know. Uh, Go find something that will put that thing away. <laughs> I don't yeah. Know. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Tesla is having issues when the Tesla, uh, you know, when occasionally when you have accidents, you know, how are you going to put that fire away? That's that's one been a uh, a major challenge from from you know firefighters with uh, an accident with with battery operated cars. Yeah. Does that apply to the hybrids as well? I guess because yeah. they you know partly battery operated, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's world challenge.
Well, uh, I'm not sure what else I share with you guys. Uh, stories tell. Obviously, uh, experience. Uh, Chad and I are very, very privileged driving Ferrari, McLarens. Um, uh, they had the new seat. Uh, um, the Hellcat. Yeah. Monster. What I still driving? haven't driven the Hell. Well, actually, I, I've driven a Hellcat, but uh, not uh, not on a track, unfortunately. What a beast! But uh, it's quite a privilege, and, and and to see customers who have never been on track, uh, you know, where we are actually talking through the the motions and the laps is uh, it's quite interesting. I I met some quite interesting people who you know walk out of there with a smile on their and that that really makes my day. And today, even instructing, you know, as I become you know honestly a bit less and less competitive because my focus now, I get more of a kick. Uh, teaching somebody how to, you know, improve their racing line and then actually, um, you know, I, I still love racing, don't, don't get me wrong, but if I see a student that actually has managed to get good results in the time for our race in, in the club I belong to, to me, I feel, I come home, you know, pleased that I have managed to pass something that I have taught or passing, you know, whatever, talents and feedback to and we have done well because we applied that on the track. That is good. Cool. I'm sure, Chad, you can relate to that. You know, if you can pass somebody and you have a friend and why not say, you know, try and, try and do this, getting this approach here into this turn here. And then, uh, you know, I, I recall uh, when I started racing the Alpha in Mont-Tremblant. You've ever been to Mont-Tremblant? I have not. I was supposed to go uh, this year, and then fell apart. <laughs> the, the track is is one of my top three. I have Mossport, uh, Watkins Glen, Montreal is my top three favorite tracks ever. Um, and um, there was a turn, uh, turn two, when you start diving down off camber, and I said, I know I can do faster. And first time I was there, and I was talking to a friend of mine, I said, you know, how, how can you how can you go faster there? Because everything is so blind, you know, and and you're off camera, you're dangling the car, and the car wants to push you into the bushes, you know, and, and says, no, there's a birch tree over there in the middle of the pine trees. Are you aim your car through the bush tree? Keep your foot down. Leap of faith. I kept my foot down, and just having that much longer in the throttle, I shaved almost three seconds off the best lap. Wow. You know, because you are, you know, the motion of decelerating and getting back uh, takes longer you know, to resume acceleration, but if you keep your foot on the gas for one or two seconds more, you know, you're just gaining so many miles per hour. There you go. Yeah, so, so for me, I, a similar moment was um, Lime Rock was the first track I'd driven, and it's the track that I have probably the most laps on of, of any track I've driven. I used to live about 20 minutes away from it, and a good friend of mine holds the uh, the track record there for Spec Miata and for other things. He's won pretty much every race he's ever raced out there. And um, he gave me a ride along in an MX-5 Cup car, and I'd been driving. I was, I think, an advanced solo driver at this point. I wasn't an instructor yet. And he goes through the uphill at Lime Rock, and he turns in so early that I'm like, you know, I'm like grabbing the oh shit bars because I'm like, we're going to hit the wall. Like, there's no run up there. It's a wall. Um, and turns in and, you know, kind of goes over the crest, puts some correction in, straightens the car out, and then doesn't crash. I'm like, Whoa. I was like, that was really fast. <laughs> I was like, that was faster than I've ever gone through there. The back end by the bump? Yeah, so that's the, the um, uh, so you have, you know, turn one into his big bend, then you have the left-hander, and then you have the right-hander onto No Name Straight. Yeah. So the end of No Name Straight is an uphill. They also have a chicane there, 
Yeah. Um, but you know, we were running without the chicane. And, uh, so you turn and then there's a, basically a wall right at the track out point. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's inside where everybody does a slow spin and, and crashes on driver's right coming through there. But, um, so he did this and, it, and I'm like, whoa, like I'm used to, you know, kind of touching the brake and then turning in. And, you know, he, he sort of did this, just lifted to get the car rotated and then the car squealing, squealing, squealing. And then it stopped squealing before we hit the wall. And he, I was like, that was crazy. He's like, this is the fastest way to do it. He's like, you got to turn in early. You're going to have no grip. But then when you hit the compression, you'll have the grip. And so I, you know, I went out there and I tried, I was turning in earlier and earlier and earlier. And unfortunately, when you do that, you go over the crest, you know, with your, and your, your butt wants to come around. So you put the correction straighten out. And once I did that, it was just so much faster per lap. I'll never teach a student that. <laughs> I'll never teach a novice that. But um, I'll teach them, you know, the proper turn in points and everything. But, uh, oh, yeah, when I'm out there and, and I found that that point is where I'll catch almost every car. Right. So I'll, I'll be behind somebody in no name. They're getting away from me. And then I'm right on them up the hill because it's um, it's a scary way to do it. But it's so much faster. Yeah. But the, it, that's the thing is that, you know, when when your car goes light at the bump, you hope that you land an equal traction. Otherwise, you're going to send your car off to the to the guardrail, which is very narrow. Yeah, but saying you're actually technically doing a little bit of a drift by doing an early apex and then going over, cresting that little hill over there, uh, and hoping that your wheels will land more or less the same. Otherwise, you're going to have to do some major correction there. Exactly. Yeah, you, you do almost a four wheel slide going into the corner, I mean, not not that dramatic, but um, you know you have zero traction on any of your tires at the apex, and it's not until track out that you actually get traction. And, yeah. Uh, Yes, you compress back in Right. Yeah, and uh, and then the downhill is such a fun guy. Lime Rock, you know, we talk our favorite tracks. Lime Rock's got to be my favorite. Um, just with the with the uphill and the downhill are my two favorite corners of any track. Uh, you know, I'll be I'll be at New Hampshire Motor Speedway. I've only driven that in a quarter million dollar car, but uh, <laughs> so it'll be my first time in a five hundred dollar car for lemons. <laughs> oh, I'll send you my track narrative. I would I would love that actually. Yeah, please. In South Oval. Uh, we're doing, uh, no, we're doing uh, double chicane. Appreciate it. Uh, quick question about driving a car on track. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I know. He's the bike what? guy. I'm the car guy. Is that yeah, a, so. You know, Kyle's the bike guy. I'm the car guy. Yeah, so uh, do cars, is it proper or good technique to do uh, trail braking? So, like, you, you continue braking in, and, like, so if you're going down the straight, you apply the brakes. And then you turn in, and going from the turn in to the apex, you're slowly easing off the brakes. And then when you hit the apex is when you're back on the throttle. Is that a thing in cars? Yes, or, or earlier. <laughs> oh, okay. I I don't I didn't I didn't know it because in motorcycles you can do that um, instead of like braking while you're while you're upright and then carrying the corner speed and then getting on the gas at the apex. Yeah. Um, the latter okay. what we teach is yeah. typically what we teach students at first. You know, a first-time novice is you'll teach them brake in a straight line, come off the brake turn, things like that. And right. then as they progress, that's when you start introducing trail brake because it takes it takes car control, right? You need to know the balance of the car. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So trail brake is uh, is a technique that you're still uh, trying to slow the car down, but you're also using that same technique while getting the turn at speed and depending on some of the turns once you finish trail braking even before you hit the apex you're already back on the gas and okay. that requires as I mean, that requires practice skill it's not mm -hmm. 
uh, for beginners. Uh, same thing as threshold breaking, uh, which is carrying massive amount of these into the turn and then actually hard breaking, more than trail breaking, and then go back in the gas, gas before the apex. Um, all these techniques are done uh, for who have achieved a more advanced level, in my opinion. Uh, otherwise, okay. you can get into some serious issues. You need to learn uh, the dynamics of the car. The dynamics, what I mean, the dynamics of the car is balance. Uh, I usually, you know, if you've done martial arts, uh, your three points is the best point uh, that you're still stable. If you take two hands off, then you're in two points, you become unstable. And uh, the contact patch, the surface of the tire, the, the, the portion of the tire that is the surface. So imagine your car weighs anywhere from 2,000 to 5,000 pounds and is held by four times, you know, the size of the palm of your hands at speed. So we have to calculate that how much load are you going to put in this contact patch when you're nego- negotiating a particular turn and how smooth you want to keep your car. So if you're doing a... a a shift in the load from one side, let's say from left to right, it's so abrupt, that's what gets your car out of control. So now you have to be smooth. And threshold braking is actually applying the dynamics, as Chad was explaining, and transferring the loads into your contact patch, into the turn, at the most and fastest way possible so you can reduce lap times. Make sense? Mm-hmm. And with trail braking, you know, that's where you're introducing a lateral load while you're braking. Exactly. So now... The, it, with all the weight on the front of the tires and no weight on the rear, very little on the rear, you know, the car's instinct is going to be to spin. So by easing off the brake, you're reapplying some weight on the back of the car while right. you the corner. So to be able to feel that and how much you need to apply pressure and, and come off the pressure, um, you know, getting it wrong, it has consequences. And that's why it's it's usually for somebody who's got more car control or, or more experience. Yeah. Okay. Then there's heel-toe shifting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Heel-toe uh, sh- shifting in those days is more of a blipping exercise, rotating the ball of your foot than, than the actual karate moves you used to do in the past was, you know, the brake pedals and accelerated pedal being so far apart. Yeah. Yeah. I just I just roll. I mean, I, I basically put my foot in. I even do this on the street. Every single corner, I basically heel-toe shift on the street, too, because it's just so, it's so easy to, to just rock your foot a little bit. And this is why I, I waited a year to find my car in a, in a manual transmission, even though Kyle thinks that's blas- blasphemous to have a Jaguar F-Type that's a manual when they have awesome paddle shifters. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a paddle shifter guy. I don't, I mean, stick shift is great, but, you know, I, I don't, I don't, it doesn't matter to me. I shouldn't say I don't care. I should say it doesn't matter. I would rather have the paddle shift for quick, fun shifting. I, I've been saying. If I ever would drive a paddle shift car in this track, I think it would be a major adaptation because, you know, the, the, the concept of you know, trail braking, threshold braking, downshifting, all that little technique that you know was a standard, was a manual car, is going to change with, uh, with paddle shift. Mm-hmm. Or, or sequential shifting for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, uh, all, all my, my cars have always been, my track cars have always been manual. Either my race car or my e car. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Stefan, I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, I think this was, I mean, for me, it was insanely interesting to just hear some of these stories. I know you probably have a ton more. Uh, we're just kind of at the tip of the iceberg here. Um, but I thought that was, um, you know, I, I think it's going to be really entertaining for our listeners for this one. Um, and I loved hearing your thoughts on Formula One too. Um, cause that was, uh, you know, that's, that's been a, a subject that we've had a lot. So to talk to another, 
uh, another um, F1 person who's been following it for as long as you have uh, is uh, is always great to have. It's been my pleasure. I'm glad. Yeah, thanks so much, Stefan. And I I hope we can get together uh, maybe uh, at a racetrack and continue our conversations and maybe do some driving. Look forward to it. How far are you? Uh, I'm only about an hour, just over an hour from Thompson. I'm on dead smack between Thompson and uh, and uh, Lime Rock in a straight line. So yeah. Maybe maybe when this pandemic is done, we have one more event after the Palmer at the October uh, if it's not snowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then hopefully this pandemic is over, we can you know do uh, you know instructing and racing uh, you know without wearing a mask uh, in in the proverbial way. So uh, yeah. That. And uh, hopefully we can meet um, the track, uh, uh, our club, uh, the Ride Along Instructor uh, Program. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sign up, uh, $35 to a member, you sign a waiver and you can ride with the instructor in the car. So that's a very, you know, what is this all about? And let me extract first and see what it does, what it helps you feel before I invest in it. It's pretty cool to um, to, to do that. And um Obviously, you're not paying three hundred and fifty dollars or five hundred dollars like experience, you know. <laughs> it's a cheap way to appreciate what what the car can uh, be handled by an instructor. Much much longer session too. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so look forward to meeting you, Kyle. Yeah, I look forward to meeting you as well. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. That has been Stefan de Panas. We uh, we are so appreciative of his uh, time that he gave uh, to be on this podcast. So. I hope you take care of yourselves out there. I'm Kyle Mayer. We'll see you next time. This is Chaz Logue saying speed safely.